0: So um, welcome everyone, and um, thank you, uh, Premesh, for for joining us, for spending the time to to speak with us. Um, the group of um, uh, of a larger group of uh, activists um, who, who work with uh, on different issues in our in our countries, in our respective countries and issues we 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 deal with, or we are passionate about. This is a very brief introduction. I suppose you have read uh, the materials we have sent out. Premesh is the uh, co-founder and currently the CEO of Malaysia Kini okay and um one of the many hats he, he wears as well and um Malaysia Kini has been a very critical a very important pivot a pivotal point for Malaysian media that has uh, greatly influenced the the political awakening social awakening of the Malaysian uh, Society and has also been uh, kind of instrumental back in 2018 uh, in the elections that kind of overthrew the the um, the, the, the government government at that time. Uh, you know, to to a new, more progressive, you know, or more seemingly progressive government. And uh, today we would like to invite. Pramish to, to share a little bit about, maybe you can start about yourself a little bit, going to Malaysia Kini, why you start Malaysia Kini and how, from your viewpoint, Malaysia Kini has shaped uh, political discourse, you know, and social discourse in, in the country. And um, the, the more important point we'd like to draw from you later on is, uh, is how do you think uh, digital media could could make a change, could make a difference in in, in our communities, in to drive change. So I I'll leave it to you, uh, permission you uh, to uh, you're already on the stage, so I just welcome you to 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 start off the session. Premish, yeah. uh,
1: thanks a lot, K V. Uh, hopefully I'm clear. If if um, you know if it drops off, just uh, let me know. Um, but thanks a lot for the invitation uh, to address this uh, esteemed audience. It's a really nice. Uh, to be here. Um, I, I, um, I think that, you know, it's been, a, it's been a very long journey. It's been over 20 years, as, as Kevi mentioned. And, you know, it's, we have seen a lot, a lot of changes over time. Uh, you know, going back to where we were um, in 1998, we, um, you know, we saw the uh, Mahate and Anua two of our core uh, leaders, split apart. And uh, Anuwa Ibrahim, who was deputy prime minister, was, was jailed. Uh, and Mahate, you know, who has been a prime minister for a long time in Malaysia, uh, adopted quite an authoritarian approach, uh, you know, in light of the challenge from uh, Anwar Ibrahim. So that's what happened in '98. Uh, for me personally, um, I began to take part in more um, social activism when I joined the university. I went to study in Australia, uh, in uh, in Sydney, and uh, you know, when I was there, I met other. Um, social activists who were talking about, you know, social change, talking about, um, you know, everything from racism and uh, in that time fighting for free education because they were going to introduce fees for overseas students. Uh, we also uh, spoke a lot about what, you know, um, uh, you know, what Philippines went through under Suharto, what Indonesia was, uh, sorry, Philippines go through under Marcos, what Indonesia was going through under Suharto, um, you know, the situation in Thailand. So students all over um, the, the region uh, were playing a very active role. Uh, I noticed Aizu, one of my, my staff, has joined us. Welcome, Aizu. <laughs> um, so um, students all over Asia were playing a very active role in, in demanding for social change. And we were part of that. Uh, and a lot of the students came to Australia to study. We were students from the Philippines, from, uh, from Indonesia, from Nepal from Hong Kong, uh, and there was a whole wave of, of you know, student activism. We had the Tiananmen Square incident in, in China. Uh, you know, Hong Kong students were very involved in many things. Uh, our friends also involved in um, campaigning for independence in, in East Timor, uh, um, you know, uh, in Thailand, in Burma. We had the student uprising in 1988 uh, against the military regime there so really in the in the in the 80s and the early 90s you could see the students uh, all over asia uh you know talking about you know how despite getting independence from you know colonial um, regimes uh you know the new post colonial countries uh, did not really respect democracy you know sliding backwards into authoritarian um, regimes um so that was the context that i found my in, in when I was studying in Australia, and I was very attracted to sort of issues of social justice. Um, we formed an organization called NOTCA, the network of OC students collectives in Australia, which involves you know students from all different backgrounds. And we began you know series of activism. We were also part of ASA, the Asian Students Association, which is based out of Hong Kong. Um, uh, and you know we campaigned against the uh, the Iraq War, uh, the Gulf War, you know many, many things. Um, Later, I came back uh, to Malaysia after my studies. I studied physics, but I ended up uh, becoming a journalist. I joined um, a newspaper here as a journalist. Uh, both me and my uh Clinic co-founder, Stephen Gunn, uh, we both uh, said, uh, joined a paper here. And we tried to do a lot more independent reporting. So back then, you know, media was pretty much controlled by the government. Um, so we tried our hand in print. Um, and we, we managed to do a few things, but didn't get really far because the government was really in control. And later I went back to do my masters in Australia and I could see how the internet, you know, in the, in the mid 1990s was being talked about and you see the first glimpses of how the internet was coming. Uh, for the old hands here, you had things like GeoCities. I know Yahoo was king, uh, in those days. Uh, you know, this is before Google and, and many of the other things that we see today. Um, but certainly you could see a lot of enthusiasm and euphoria about this new way that information could flow, um, across the world. Um, and we had a part about, you know, setting up the first, uh, internet. We actually set up a dial-up connection, uh, from Malaysia, uh, into Sarawak and from Sarawak into Australia, um, was the first, you know, kind of like the internet-based connection even before we had things, uh. The government set up internet. Uh, we were part of the Association of Progressive Communications (APC). I think KV may may remember. Yeah. I'm not sure about the others. Uh, very early days of uh, internet communication. Um, so uh, we did a lot of in- initial work, and I think that you know when when uh, when Anoa was sacked, and this, you see the split between Mahate and and uh, Anoa, that is when um, you know we came up with the idea of. Setting up Malaysia Kini as um, you know as a independent voice uh, on on, on uh, independent media in Malaysia. And uh, Stephen was in Thailand at the time; he was working with The Nation in uh, in Bangkok, uh, my partner. And he came back, uh, uh, and two of us uh, launched Malaysia Kini in 1999, some uh, 21 years ago. Uh, we started off with about six people. Uh, I think the idea was to. At that time, there were a lot of blogs and, you know, uh, anonymous publications, but there was no professionally run, uh, you know, media company online, mainly because people didn't think that, you know, it could have much of an impact. But we believed that the internet would grow over time. Uh, So we wanted to bet that if we ride this wave, uh, we could really build a, a strong media organization. And we believed that, you know, with more independent news, uh, we would see Malaysia change. Uh, you know, people would be better informed. Um, so that's why we launched in 1999. Um, you know, some of the early challenges was, of course, you know, how do you finance it? So we managed to get some uh, initial investments from friends and we managed to get an initial grant uh, when we launched. But we quickly found out that, you know, advertisers wouldn't come into something we so political. So um, we faced a lot of political headwinds uh, from Mahate but also a lot of financial difficulties and challenges. And so after three years, we decided to switch to um, a subscription-based system uh, where we asked our readers to subscribe. And this is very early on, it's 2002, a time when there's very little, very few sites doing subscriptions. Um, And it forces to innovate a lot because people were not using their credit cards online. Uh, You know, this was a really, really long time back. People were using mainly email to communicate. There was no social media, there's no Facebook. Um, so we had to come up with a lot of creative ways to attract readers, to get them to pay. Um, so it took us a long time, but in many ways, we, we, uh, we, we both rode on the wave of the, of the democratization, as well as we helped power this wave of democratization. So Malaysia Kinney was always seen to be this voice calling for reform, calling for human rights, calling for social justice. Um, you know, and, and the first breakthrough was in 2008 when um, in the election 2008, the, the opposition won uh, quite a number of states uh, in Malaysia. And then, uh, you know, from then on, there was a series of demonstrations and struggle. And, you know, it kept on going, going, going. And finally, in 2018, uh, on the back of the 1MDB scandal, where our prime minister was implicated in this huge global scandal, um, you know, uh, he managed to tip the balance, especially when Mahathir Anwar, who in 1998, you know, in way came back together in 2018, some 20 years later, uh, to join forces to topple um, the, the, the the government of the day, Abno. Um, so we had the first political change in 61 years. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's a little a bit about Mejikini. Today we're about 120 people. Uh, we publish in four languages English, Malay, Chinese, and Tamil. Uh, you know, we're, we're probably the number one uh, news organization in terms of reach in the country. Uh, we, we're very influential. So it's come a long way. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that's kind of the first phase of, of, uh, you know, social change. I think if we kind of, you know, reflect on Measure Kini and maybe generalize the experience a bit more, um, you can see that, that media was controlled through, because they controlled you know, the, the the um the the printing presses, they control distributions and very importantly they control advertising. And what internet did was that, you know, it, it actually changed all three. Um sorry. Uh it changed all three. So uh using internet you could distribute your content, you no longer needed a printing press, and you could earn money on advertising, uh, you know, through uh not just local advertising but also foreign advertising. So it really, you know, dramatically changed the basis of where media operated on, and, and we took advantage of that. And of course, you know, smartphones came came along, um, you know, in the mid-2008, or 10, and that then dramatically increased the number of people who, um, you know, could access the internet, but also it made them to be able to access it anywhere and anytime. So... You really went from carrying a newspaper around with you to, you know, just basically getting your news on your smartphone. Um, so that really, very, very quickly accelerated the use of, um, of, uh, of internet. At the same time, it had a growing, uh, the growth of social media, uh, powered by Facebook and Twitter and others, and that, you know, really, you know, liberalized a number of, of news sources online. Uh, to a huge number of, of, of uh you know brands and people started to rely more on their social networks rather than than um, than just a media brand. Of course the news and information became very widespread and I like to make it an analogy of um of food. You know you you get so much variety but not all food is uh is nutritious. <laughs> so say that news and information, you know. Um not all uh not all news information provides nutrition, a lot of it is actually kind of like fast food and not really good for you. It may taste good, it may be very spe- full of speculation and, you know, full of things that are enticing to read, uh, but not really good for your health. So um, that's the world we live in today, where uh, news and information is aplenty, but, you know, not everything is, is, is kind of good for you. Um, and also we see a lot of technological advancements such as video, uh, really making online news mainstream uh, in many ways, especially here in Malaysia. Um, you know, I know some of you would say that that you know not everybody has access to the internet. Um, you know, and, and whether or not the internet is um, a tool of the elite, um, I think in a way there's always been so. I think even in in the past that um, there were a lot of people who did not have access to newspapers or radio or television or even if they had access to radio and television um it did not reflect their views it was essentially state driven um you know uh, um, radio and television um so i think that that remains to be so that they are the people who have access to technology and ability to um, deliver the messages using technology and in many ways the poor are still uh cut off from um you know receiving information and news that uh, are really beneficial for them, uh, you know, where they are the the, the creator of that content uh, and reflects their realities rather than just, uh, you know, a, a receiver of that content. So in that sense, in terms of media poverty and media exclusion, in some ways it has improved, but um, there are still many sectors of society which are excluded from having an impact um, uh, using media. um yeah, so I think, I, I think that's kind of, you know, a kind of a, a general uh, way of, of looking at things. Um, but increasingly I think that, you know, you ask me now and, and how things are going forward. I think media now is now really much, uh, uh, both a hybrid of, of a media as well as, as social movements. You can see a lot of social movements uh, using the internet and media as very much part of social organizing. Uh, you know, you had the earlier movements like, you know, Arab Spring and things like that. But even Black Lives Matter, Me Too movements, Hong Kong, everywhere, you see that, that, that media, uh, essentially then often gravitate to, you know, one type of social movement or the other. Just like in Malaysia, Kini, although we, you know, we were, we were, we were independent, uh, in many ways, we echoed the similar themes like human rights, social justice, which, uh, things like Reformasi, uh, did. Um, so I, I I I think that you know especially now with the push towards subscription uh, you know and talking about social change bringing back the topic you know it, it's really kind of seeing how media tends to shape social movements and social media movements uh, shape uh, shape the media. Um, I mean this this is the past but I think if we it's interestingly in terms of I see going going forward. Uh, I was trying to think about you know um, um, how how media would would shape uh, things in the future, and I think that you know in, in this year you know we 're really talking about things like climate change you know, distribution of wealth, increasing geopolitics between u s and and china democracy uh, these are some of the main key issues I think that we face you know going forward and um, I I think that that is where we need to apply our digital skills and digital media and, in a way, try to fashion new ways of using these digital tools to address these digital um, challenges. Um, and I think this is like how, you know, media in the past has reshaped societies. I think going forward, we need to think about how we can use the digital tools to, you know, organize more vibrantly, uh, you know, how to be... Use it as tools for voting, uh, you know, or even organizing strikes or, or boycotts or other means of, of real strong social organizing, um, uh, not just you know media information. Um, I often think about you know what, how does you know how how can we go beyond the nation state, uh, you know how do we organize uh, you know Asian white parties or the Asian white political party. Um, so I, I I suppose these are the questions that I, I think about in the sense that um you know we, 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 we don't want to just do what we did in the past, right? But how do we apply uh, this increasing new tools towards a new type of social change which which is probably required in the you know the next ten to fifteen years. Um so I think yeah, I've been speaking for about twenty minutes already, so maybe I can take more questions and then I can fill in the blanks. In terms of you know the machine journey yeah, and, thanks, and
0: what's thanks, ahead. Yeah, uh, thanks. Okay, just do a little checkpoint. Uh, welcome. We have new members who just came in. Um, yeah, if you're new and first time here on uh, Clubhouse, anyone can 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 come up to the stage and ask your questions or give an opinion. Just raise your hand and I'll we'll bring you up. Um. If you have questions, you can just them really anytime. I'll I'll bring you up to the stage. So thanks for for the the introduction it was it was very interesting. I think a lot of questions are now forming in my head. I, I believe uh, Doreen and Topsy have questions too. Uh, before they, they jump in and before I the, the the audience start to ask questions, maybe just just a question from me. Um, you know, twenty years. What was the some of the key challenges you faced in the first ten first ten years and the last ten years, or should I say the next ten years, what were some of the you know uh, the, the the challenges that you faced that significant for us to think about
1: yeah thanks KB um I think in the first ten years it was you know it was about uh you know surviving, right? You're kind of a young media, uh you know you know every government's out to harass you, uh, it's a lot of political pressure. So, you almost have to be kind of like a kind of half like a gorilla outfit trying to figure out you know how are you' going to get through um so you know I think both financial as well as political um so like I mentioned you know we, when you went to do subscription, it was really tough. we had to invent all this new software and and you know, new ways of doing things, but it was also very difficult to convince our own uh, organization like I remember when uh it was at a staff retreat when uh Steven and I, you know, said that, look, you know, we, we want to go subscription because if we don't get subscription, we won't be able to survive. And you know, the entire company was against us, you know. There was, uh, people were falling off their chairs and saying, this is crazy. This is stupid. Nobody's going to pay for news. Um, so whenever you kind of put a new idea forward, it's really, really difficult to, to win people over. It was almost saying, we're saying, look, if we don't go subscription, you know, we, we're going to have to close down, right? So, I think one lesson early on is that change sometimes only happens through crisis. Uh, although we all plan and we all strategize and we, you know, we think uh, that we construct change. Sometimes it's only to a crisis that people are more willing to look at new ideas. Even like, even you look at what a pandemic now, right? Who would have thought that people are willing to work from home, that companies can run from home, etc. Uh, if you try to introduce the idea earlier, everything's thinks you're crazy. But, you know, when the pandemic happens, you have no choice, then people start to, to change. And then you say, hey, actually change is possible. So there are all these kind of things in society that, that we, we accept that there's no choice. We have, you know, capitalism, we have markets, we have the rich and poor, you know, um, things that are very fundamental to our our idea, idea of war, idea of, you know, going to war with each other and killing each other, you know. These are, these are ideas that are so uh, embedded into our society. Um, and what would it take for some of these ideas to you know, go away? I think that, you know, that, that was a very key challenge in Malaysia. How do we actually construct change? And, and, you know, and when we launched subscription, it was not a success. In the first year, we only managed to get a 1,000 subscribers. Uh, we had about 100,000 readers. So it took a long time and a lot of hard work to fine-tune the system and fine-tune the system. But definitely today, we are very, very strong because of our number of subscribers we have, the strong loyalty we have. Uh, Recently, there was a court case that we lost um, uh, in in Malaysia. Uh, And, you know, the judge gave a huge amount of fine, a half a million ringgit fine, which is absorbent. Uh, uh, It was a fine because of some comments, some readers' comments, uh, not by us, but by our readers themselves. Uh, But, you know, people were so outraged that we managed to raise uh, more than half a million ringgit in just four hours uh, after the court decision. So, you know, I think although subscription was very difficult over time, we've been able to build up uh, a, a key base. And I think the the other big challenge in the early years was um, in a way just to find people, right? Because joining Malaysia Kinney was a big risk. So we had many people joining us and then the parents will ask their kids to quit, you know. Saying it's too dangerous, uh, we were never able to pay um, high salaries. So, you know, how to get people to take a pay card and join a uh, dangerous job? So, I think idealism is really great, but, you know, getting people to commit to idealism and following through with that is different, right? Uh, how do you really um, build an organization under such stresses? I think was a real tough challenge in the first, uh, first 10 years. Um, In the subsequent 10 years, after 2008, it was really about, you know, going from a small organization of, say, 20, 30 people to a mid-sized organization of 100, 120 people. And that really changes the culture because once you start going past 30, 40 people, everybody has their own group. Everybody has their own department. Everybody has their own objective, and you start to splinter. So to try to keep a common goal, a common vision, and, you know, try to to keep building it, uh, you know, again, all the different stresses, I think it's very tough. Everybody wants things their own ways, right? Uh, um, uh, and, and, and and the thing about building a social organization is that everybody feels that they are sacrificing. Everybody feels that they're giving up their their livelihoods, they're taking risks. So with a very large amount of sacrifice, the more they feel ownership about leisure and what we do. And, you know, when they disagree with something, the more <laughs> the more adamant they become, right? Because they feel such strong ownership about, you know, the mission of Mission Guinea, So I think that was really a big challenge to keep growing and keep it going over the next, 20, uh, the next 10 years. And I think now, uh, you know, Steven and I are running for 20 years and now the real challenge is to pass it on to the next generation. Bodo plan to to step back and, you know, it's all about transition, right? So how do you very difficult for the founders to leave, and how do you transit in such a way that you know the organization continues with its mission despite not having the founders? So I think that's a, a key challenge that yeah, we have to It's very interesting.
0: Too. Thanks very much. I, I picked up two interesting points. One was uh, the the whole organization, how it's structured. It seems like it's structured more like a social organization. Uh, lack of a better word would be a social enterprise in that sense. You know, am I right to say that?
1: Yeah, that's right. So exactly. I think
0: structuring this way is, is a very, very interesting way. You know how we perceive this uh, structure of our organization. The other thing I've, I, I kind of struck me was, you know, the case where where, where you had to raise uh, half a million ringgit. That's about a hundred thousand US dollars, basically, uh, frame. Um, and that was done in a matter of hours. And you know, I think it has come to a point that uh, people see not uh not people see Malaysia Kini not just as a as a platform for news and activation but also as something like um uh how should I say it it's like a like a beacon, you know, we need you, we will support you, you know, you help us in in, in, in this social change. So I think it it's uh, the relationship of uh, of Malaysia Malaysia Kini and society and and the community who are keenly change has come together in the in a very interesting relationship. So so I do you have anything to to kind of comment on this relationship and how you know over the years you have kind of built this?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, that that's very true. I think you know brands today or organizers today. Have to have this kind of relationship with, um, you know, the, 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 either the clients, the consumers, their followers. That's why I kind of describe it like a, like a social movement. And, you know, we, we, we had this very early on, like when we were thinking about, you know, what we're going to do with Mercer when we're not making money, we asked ourselves that, okay, look, advertisers don't care whether we exist or don't exist. You know, if tomorrow Mercer Kinney closes down, now this was back in in 2001, 2002, I said, tomorrow, if we shut Mercer who will miss us, who will cry for us, right? Who will say that, oh, I don't want Malaysia Kini to die. And we felt that at the end of the day, these are our readers, our subscribers, our supporters. These are the people who will say, you know, I want Malaysia Kini, right? So we said, yeah, okay, it's a small group, but, you know, can we build this group? How? What do we need to do to, you know, keep on building, you know, uh, allies, friends, supporters, and always stay close um, to the people. So we, you know, was just one, but, you know, Steve and I are very approachable. People can drop by the office and, you know, we see people, we always talk to them, we have open offices, we sit our staff. So the whole organisation you know, was about being close to our readers, being close to the people, being close to, you know, the, the, the people who support us. Um, we, we try to avoid separating ourselves from um, the ground. So, for example, um, you know, one, one very important part was the ability of our readers to comment on Malaysia Kini. And even though what they said was terrible, and even though we got fined, uh, you know, $500,000 for what our readers said, uh, we refused to close down that section. Because we said that if we close down our readers' comments, that will distance us from our readers. You know, so we constantly struggle and keep saying, Look, how do we continue to work with the people to build what Malaysia Kini is about? And not separate Mr. Kini from our our readers. Yeah, it's very very
0: interesting. Very interesting takeaway. just relationship building with the community. I'll leave it at I'll leave it at that. Uh, we have a question from Dexter. Dexter, um, over to you.
2: Oh yeah. Well, thank you, Pramash. That was really interesting. Um, I, I came in about five five ten minutes ago, but um, i wanted to ask you a little bit more about this recent court case and really how you've already kind of touched on it, but I was wondering, how is Malaysia Kini going to evolve in the future with, if things like this happen again? Because I'm sure you were surprised, if not shocked, by the intense weight of the fine. How, how do you think you're going to try to um, maybe address that when it happens again or try to, try to prevent it happening again? Or what do you think your new strategy is going to be in a, in a space that is kind of as policed as intensely as, as you just experienced?
1: Yeah, um, sorry. Are you from Malaysia? Or are you from abroad? Just just to check. Uh,
2: I'm from I'm from uh, I was born in the United States, but I'm I'm from London.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think that that um, it's a challenge. Uh, so we we we've lost two cases, and the both cases were, were were fined very heavily. First half a million, and then more recently another uh, case involving a gold mining company where again they they uh, fined us another two hundred thousand. So we do recognize that you know we could there could be many legal cases ahead, uh, and and uh, you know we don't want to we don't want to um, what do you call it uh, ask for public donations every time there is a, a case. So I think part of it is of course we need to build our legal defenses, so we are very much more careful with our comments and you know things that we do. Uh, but we 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 constantly want to. We've also talked about. Setting up a media council and you know, changing the law in terms of defamation. So, uh, I was, I was the, uh, 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 chair of the media council and we drafted all new laws and things. But it's not going to go ahead because, you know, we've had a reversal and, um, there's a bit of a authoritarian government in place. So I think we, we don't really have a choice but to, in a way, continue to be what we are. Uh, and be more vigilant about some of these legal cases. Um, you know, I think that they, the government also realized that the more they hit us, um, the more credible we we are, the more we they, they see. Because people, and someone would say, oh, well, uh, you know, Malaysia is not very relevant. And then you go and lay, raise half a million in four hours, right? So it just reinforces how important role that we play, right? So... In a way, we try to send a message back to the government that every time you try to take us down, that's just going to make us stronger, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's time that you take a different approach in dealing with this. So we also we're not enemies with the government. We have worked a lot with the Prime Minister's Department, you know, on COVID, on the pandemic. You know, we 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 um, we are very cordial with you know um, all the, the the different governments, uh, even when. Mahate who tried to shut us down uh, uh, when he was in power, when he was out of power, you know, he came to Malaysia, Kini to, to do an interview and to speak his mind because he's getting shut off with the with the uh, by the government. Same thing happening with Najib Raza after he lost power. Uh, so we we try to be fair to the government. We're not against the government, but we're going to be sticking to our 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 reporting strategies, on you know, human rights, etc um so we're just trying to convince the government that you know it's better to work with us and and answer our questions and trust that we will report independently rather than trying to shut us down and every time you try to shut us down we're just going to come back stronger
3: yeah wow.
2: that that kind of re- that's an awesome response thank you and i it may it's it's inspiring as well because it's good for uh, yeah the, the in- independence of your kind of press is really important for you know, some semblance of democracy, and it, and it makes me think of this, this concept that I've heard a couple of times, which is being like anti-fragile, where the things that kind of would normally break other organizations or people are actually things that make you stronger,
1: um, and I, I think
2: that's that's really cool. So thank you.
1: Yeah, we focus a lot on, on this sort of resilience. So, but the, the we are very resilient again at attacks, and that's our strong point. But because of that, we're also not really good at growing fast or growing big. So our corporate strategy, you know, our financing strategies, you know, you're know, you almost like a guerrilla army who's good at fighting a guerrilla war, but maybe not so good at you know, running government. You, you get what I mean? So when you build yeah. a certain DNA, um, that DNA also captures you as well. And you have to be conscious of that sort of circumstances. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Thanks. Thank you.
4: Oh, I have a question, actually. um, Well, I'm not sure if there is any other
0: organization or, like, media platform that is running this big, the same as uh, Malaysia Kinney. And uh, if, if there is or there are, do you think they are your competitor or your alliance and have you worked with them or kind of, like, support each other or you actually see them as like competitors in
3: terms of subscribers or
1: yeah that kind of yeah thing. i think there are two sets yeah they are, they are uh some of the more government-led media which uh we wouldn't don't really subscribe to the same values of independent media professional journalism uh but there are also a lot of our competitors who also share our same values that you know they they compete with us to deliver professional independent news. Um, and they are our competitors, but they're also our friends, you know, uh, similarly alike. Um, there was one case where, uh, you know, we had a Chinese language website and there was another Chinese language website which was competing, doing good good journalism. It's called Merdeka Review, which is like Independence Review. Uh, and they were smaller than us. Uh, and they ran out of funding and they were going to shut down. Uh, you know, they, they, they told the, the, all the readers that, you know, uh, we can't no longer survive and we're going to shut down. But what we did was we saying, look, even though they are our competitors, they actually do good journalism. And what we did was we launched a joint subscription. So if you sub- subscribe, you get both Malaysia Kini and you get this other uh, uh, media company. And we would give them 50% of the income, uh, even though they were very small. So, you know, we we were carrying like the load uh, because we, we were much bigger and had more news to offer. And this was only like, you know, seven or 10 people, you know, small outfit. Uh, but we said, no, it's it's important that, you know, that we have competitors and they share the same value. And the readers loved that. We really got a lot of subscribers because they loved the idea that, you know, you can compete, but you can, you can still be friends because you share the same values. Um, and even when our... Our, uh, you know, our other media, which have been, uh, you know, they have been trying to shut down or they get arrested. Um, we have turned our Medikini website, you know, black and white, uh, you know, etc. In solidarity with uh, our friends from other media. So in a sense that we try to cooperate and, and support other independent media in Malaysia, we find with that. Um, you know, we, we, we all believe that we're in the same boat, that, you know. So we have to compete you know we 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 love to compete and we love to out, out beat each other for a good story um it's like running a hundred meters race right you love to compete on the track and you want to beat your opponent on the track but off the track you're still friends you know so so i i i see it in in, in that way
0: yeah that sounds great actually yeah it, it it's kind of like the media world that's supposed to be you know like independent competitive yeah. yet supportive yeah 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 that's right. Yeah, I think the interesting point here you, you raise is the, the the value system. I think there's there's a lot of thought. Um, you, you seem to have put a lot of thought into 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 the motivation of, of Malaysia Keeny and, and that value is is you know able to be perceived by others. And I think that's that's a that's a critical point, right? Um anyone else have any questions for for Pramesh?
3: Yes, Dorian. Hi, Pramesh. I have several questions, but let me not uh, ask them all at once. Uh, first, I want to say how inspired I am by the uh, agility of you and your team's thinking. Um, and I'm particularly moved to hear about, uh, from the beginning, it seemed like a core value of Malaysia Kini was to care about the the kinds of people that normally don't get cared about for example the subscribers which some you know some companies some for profit entities might see as the small peas you know because they are just bring in a little bit of money you know and um, but it it, found, it sounds like you have stayed really committed to the subscribers and see them as and see them as your base and the other commitment that I hear you talk about is to the staff. Um, and I love this idea of, um, you know, if people already feel like, oh, I'm I'm making a sacrifice, I could be making a lot more money somewhere else. Well, you know, if we can't offer money, what we can offer is a sense of ownership and um, using a sense of ownership to make people feel like they really matter. And they do. So I want to say how moved I am by that. And I would love to hear you talk about, how specifically you care about the staff and care about the subscribers. But um, the other question I want to add now, uh, ask now is since the topic of tonight is digital media as tools for social change, one thing in on my mind is how much digital media has changed from when you started off in the late 90s uh, and 20, 20 plus years later, I feel like the promise of the internet has become darker and darker. Uh, maybe the late 90s, it it was this kind of pioneering uh, space with this sense of freedom. But now it feels like the internet is increasingly this like, just a, just a blatantly for-profit space, you know, where we're just being fed on. And my question is kind of big, but I'm like, how do you maintain hope about the internet? Okay. Um, yeah. As a space to really have, um, true dialogue and and uh, and to and to build what well, we care about building compassion for each other.
1: Sure, sure. Okay. Let me take the, your first question and if I forget I'll come back to your your, your last question. I think for, for staff and subscribers, you know, we we, we um we well, you know, Stephen and I come again from a kind of a social justice center left background, right? So it's really helped that um, you know, both of us, uh, kind of agree on the kind of the North Star of, you know, what Malaysia Kini is for and what values drive Malaysia Kini. Um, I think it's very difficult if you have two or three co-founders and, you know, they have maybe a different perspective. Um, and I think and I think what we did very early on was to divide our tasks. So Stephen is the editor-in-chief and he's a very good editor-in-chief. And although I used to be a journalist, I left the the role of a journalist of, of doing content and I focus purely on business. So my job is to, you know, make as much money as we can, uh, but not to in any way erode the independence of Major Kinney. So I let editorial do their job. I don't interfere with editorial. So we both have our we have a common North Star of what we are about and then we have our jobs that we need to do. So Steven's job is to put produce the best content day in, day out to get the editorial team going, to dig up the stories, to really, you know, hold power to account. My job is to figure out, you know, how we're we going to make the money, how we're we going to get advertising in, subscribers in, you know. So I think that, that's also really key um, for kind of an organizational structure to work. Um, and how, we, you know, we, we, re, we always reinforce the message to our staff, even to our readers that, that you know, that we're always here reporting these things. Um, you know, simple rules like okay, if a subscriber or reader sends an email in, make sure we reply within 24 hours. You know, make sure we pick up our calls. We don't have a, you know, a machine. We call Malaysia Kinney. We don't have a machine that answers. We have a human being which answers. If someone walks in the door, treat them with respect. You know, if someone calls and say, look, I'm really poor. You know, I I I can't afford Malaysia Kinney. We just say, look. Just give them a a free subscription. It's okay, you know. If they claim that they can't afford mushikini, that's fine, you know. Uh, uh, so we, we just kind of reinforce and say, look, we need our readers and subscribers, but, you know, treat them as good human beings, right? Presume they're good rather than presume they're bad. And, you know, with our staff is that they, they, um, you know, we, again, you and I don't have our separate offices. We don't have our own car parks. We just park with everybody and eat with everybody and work with everybody. Our salaries are not that high. I always got paid that Malaysia Kidney doesn't pay me enough. (laughs) But thank God I have a, uh, my wife works with the UN and she earns (laughs) a lot of money. So that is, uh, that is really helpful for me. Um, But, you know, we gave, and then we gave a lot of shares out to our initial staff who worked with us in the first few years. And, you know, we always tell our, our staff, look, at the end of the day, if you have core responsibility, getting married, you have a family, you know, we we respect the idea that you need to leave the organization and you need to get a much higher paying job, um, but we always keep in touch with our ex staff. Many of them always come back and help in some way, you know, during elections or etc. Uh, we never we don't we don't hold a grudge if they go off and you know we basically tell them when you leave Mejikini, go for a job which at least pays you double. So, because you're definitely worth it, you know? basically we're generally paying you generally half of what you're worth, you know, out there. Um, and, and many of them do go on for very, very, uh, you know, good jobs, and we're happy for them. Um, so we, we we try to we try to always tell our staff, Look, you're here for a mission, and as long as you can contribute to for to that mission, please do. But if it gets too tough for you and you need to leave, we totally understand. You know, we're not. Uh, and many many staff have left. And come back to measure Kinney so um, that's also fine um, so I think we just try to keep on doing that message so for example we bought a building um, we uh, did uh, we did crowdfunding and everybody gets a name on the brick so if you come to measure Kinney you get this huge wall of people's names on bricks and you know in a way it's a reminder that that these are the people who have allowed us to have this building you know um, not some some you know some some Millionaires it's, it's by our own subscribers. And then they, we also have a plot saying our building was built by workers from Indonesia, from Thailand, from Myanmar, from Bangladesh, you know, and Malaysia and Vietnam. Because to respect all the migrant workers that build Malaysia, I mean, you look at Malaysia with all these huge skyscrapers, but they're all built by migrant workers. So we have a plot respecting them. So we keep on trying to do these little things to say, you know, these are all the little people that have contributed to our success. And even with Steven and myself, you know, we couldn't have done Malaysia Kini without all the help. Even KB soon has helped us. Many, many people have helped us. So that's the message that we give. And I think as a social movement, it's really good to create the sort of strategies that remind us about who we represent and, you know, who makes us work. Um, now I'm starting to think about your next question. Uh, digital media and social change, right? You're saying that it's very bleak. That that you know, it seems to have been taken over uh, by you know big capitalists, etc. Yeah.
3: How do I, you make hope about the internet?
1: Yeah, I I you know I I I think that's kind of expected, right? We always knew that as you know as there was more and more opportunity to make money on the internet, that the big companies would invade the space. You know, we didn't. Um, I don't think I expected any less that you know that 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 you know they would be mean, but. You know, I think look at you know having this conversation over Clubhouse. I think, you know, nearly all the organizing that we do, whether it's the protest movements or other movements and all, you know, it, it, it happens through um, social media these days and, you know, the tools that we use, the protests in Hong Kong, you know, uh, uh, again, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives movement, you know, if you if you speak to the corporates, you know, they used to have it easy. They used to occupy all the main spaces. They used to control the media to a large degree um but now you know people of all types uh, can influence political change of course there are people who we disagree with who are also using the internet media you know to propagate their own way they say what taliban organized the takeover of afghanistan using whatsapp <laughs> uh, you know so so but you know i i don't think we should see it, the internet as something which is all good or all bad but um, these are technological tools that are available how do we use these technological tools to drive you know change that we seek right AI is coming machine learning is coming how do we you know use the tools to drive change rather than say that you know uh, we don't want to use these technologies because they're being dominated by, uh, by, by the big, uh, big companies so um, I, I see internet as that I don't see I don't see internet as negative I see that, you know, uh, um, how we can drive change. I mean, my daughter Banu downstairs is, you know, pitching an idea about uh, uh, um, uh, something called Asher, which basically burns uh, waste. And she's doing the pitch to a group in Japan. You know, so half the session is in, is in Japanese and then her session is in English. Um, something called what? Something called Jam, something like that. And she wouldn't be able to pitch her idea, you know, without the, without the internet. Um, so, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that that the internet can be used for social change, um, but it depends on us, you know, figuring out how to do it and using the opportunities available.
0: Interesting. On that note, um, I want to go back to something you mentioned in the introduction about the future, right? So now, for the next half an hour, I want to tap on your vision, Ramesh. Um, what next what's yeah. going to happen what are some of your inspiration ideas about how the digital tools can 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 help shape or how can we use digital tools to help shape um, our, our society to be more inclusive to be more peaceful harmonious compassionate if you like the term right you mentioned something about uh voting across you know political parties across ASEAN for example maybe you know can you dive into that a little bit
1: yeah i I think that the internet is a way for us to organize in large numbers. I mean uh you know people like obama, Bernie Sanders you know they 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 came up because of small and small donations, right They didn't have to rely on the on the party infrastructure per se um you know so i I think there is a great opportunity for us to organize in large numbers uh but the question is what are we organizing for? And how do we use such organization to, in a way, either take power or impact power or influence power or influence, you know, social results, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, we, we, in some ways, our politics are still stuck in, 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 um, uh, behind national borders, but, you know, we are able to communicate and organize across national borders. And, I think the opportunity is that a lot of us are, in a way, tired of our politics. We, 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 we see the way our political parties contest with each other. And regardless of who wins a political fight, we don't really see the benefits of it. Um, so I think that, you know, I think the, the way forward is to look at, you know, parties like, you no know, Pedomas uh, in, 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 uh, in Spain, uh, you know, the Pirate Party in Germany, other types of, you know, political social organizing. In, and ask ourselves, you know, how or what could we do to uh, create such mass, you know, so that we can have an impact on, say, you know, what's going on in Myanmar or, or other countries, right? Um, I've always thought that, you know, it's a good time to start a, a pan-ASEAN party, uh, a, a pan-ASEAN uh, political party. I think young people are really, you know, connected and have, uh, you know, a very uh, thirst to address things like climate change, etc., cetera. Um, and it, it it breaks out, like for example, in Malaysia, we are very much caught up in our own politics, right? And then, you know, this party versus that party. But if you talk about an ASEAN party and you talk about larger goals like climate change or inequality, then things change. Um, for example, you know, could we create activist investment funds? If, if we, each of us say, contribute uh, $10 a month or $5 US a month into a common fund. Uh, and we do that across ASEAN or across Asia. You know, could we get a million people putting in $5 a month? That's a, that's a $5 US dollars. And then could we then invest in companies to create change, right? Uh, uh, get companies to change, get companies to take up strong positions. So in the US, with the, with the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of companies had to adopt and change their political positions. And in a way, Signal that they were in support of uh, racial equality uh, purely because even their own staff, like Google well, staff, were organizing, Facebook staff were organizing in, internally to those organizations. Um, so you know, how can we form, for example, an Asian or an ASEAN political p- party or a social movement, and then you know, collaborate with the with the staff of Google or collaborate with the with the staff of facebook or or, or amazon etc to deliver better results right i think you know if we have a million members across asia and we then agree that amazon staff across the world should be paid a minimum wage of you know x dollars i think there will be a huge pressure on amazon to change and say that yes you know we will pay all our staff anywhere in the world a minimum wage you know so so i i i really feel that there is a uh, uh, an ability for us to organize um, i think uh, organizing around votes uh, organizing around uh, activist investment strategies uh, uh, around strikes and boycotts um, these are very very powerful tools that we can we can use to put a huge amount of pressure so let's say we take myanmar uh, you know if we had a million people um, around asia in an organized way what are the key points what are the key pressure points could be put pressure on so that, you know, Myanmar would, you know, not take a, a violent way or give them an incentive to handle the matter peacefully, for example, um, or, or around climate change. How could we make sure, you know, what are the 10 worst companies in terms of uh, climate change and how could we make them, you know, change their investment habits? Um, so I think this is the future that I'm looking towards. Uh, and And there may be other ideas, right? Uh, But definitely, I think, you know, uh, uh, more direct participation in democracy outside the ballot box, I think, is the key that we need to create.
0: Thanks, thanks. Thanks, Ramesh. I want to throw you a question, uh, a challenge now. You mentioned Myanmar, and many of of us here are passionate and very, very concerned what's happening in Myanmar. You know, um, what do you think the Myanmar people can do now you know, to 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 kind of help, uh, in, in their current situation, the political and social situation, and how do you think you know using the digital tools, people outside Myanmar like us can collaborate to support them,
1: now. Yeah, it's a difficult question. I I spent about you know last uh, about three years, uh, you know, working with me uh, Myanmar uh, media, Democratic Voice of Burma, and a few other uh Myanmar. So I was there like, you know, every other month I was spending time there. So uh, uh, so I kind of got to see a lot of things uh, up close. And, you know, you can really see the military trying to juggle for a position. And then, you know, uh, you know, and then at the end of the day, when they found they couldn't win the election again, this is what the result is. I think we can't... It's a bit hard to say what are the pressure points. Um, you know, I... I, 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 um, I, I really... I've been thinking about it. A lot of people have been consulting about it. Uh, at the moment, what we're doing is that, you know, in, you know, Myanmar, journalists need to leave. We offer them sanctuary in Malaysia. Uh, you know, they are, they are now uh, rebroadcasting using, you know, the internal channels were, were yeah. shut down, so they're rebroadcasting using outside uh, channels. Um, I think the telcos have a, have a leverage. So I think Telenor is, is pulling out. So I think, for example, if you understand that telco networks uh, whether Microsoft or Ericsson or Huawei are supplying technology, then these are some, you know, possible critical points. I think uh, we need to put pressure on other companies who are investing in, uh, in, in Myanmar to say, look, you know, they will not accept uh, sort of level of violence. Um, if we are better organized, then, you know, we, I think, in our part of the world, China is playing a very, uh, very important uh, uh, role. But the Chinese society is divided between people who are labelled as you know pro-West and you are you are just Western lankies, and the people who are who are in China but really believe in in China playing a much more positive role um, in China. So how can we connect with those groups, right? How can we connect with you know real social activists in China who who want China to do better and 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 how do we get them to put pressure on China to moderate the situation um, in uh, in in Myanmar? So we you know we always go towards the West to have moderate on human rights, but increasingly we need a, a strategy to engage with uh, Chinese uh, civil society as well and Chinese uh, so- social movements. So I think it's a bit hard for us to react immediately uh, on Myanmar, but I think the lesson is to understand what's happening in Myanmar and say, look, okay, if this happens in five years' time, what are tools that can we build today so that we stop it from happening in, in five years' time, you know? So if we take a 5 to ten-year horizon, then, you know, what are the tools that we start building today uh, to put us in a better situation? So even when, when Michigan started, we didn't think that we could make an impact, you know, overnight, but we said that, okay, in five years' time or in 10 years' time or 15 years' time, what is the impact that we could create? So I think I think that's a key challenge we face. Uh, what can we build so that we can so that we prevent this from happening in 2025 or 2030? Because I think the way uh, countries are going, we will see countries because of climate change, because of inequalities, more and more countries, you know, becoming have internal conflict and becoming failed states and things like that. So Myanmar is just the tip of the iceberg, um, and we need to prepare ourselves. Uh, how do we deal with these sort of situations
0: going forward? Interesting, you brought up China. China is also developing and exporting a lot of technologies, you know, like the Huawei and so on, right? Um, Do you think that China will will overrun, you know, the technology space in this, this, at least in this region? Uh, What do you think the impacts will be?
1: I think China has the capability to to really... um, you know, develop new technologies faster than, say, the U.S. I think we already saw in 5G and in many, you know, even WeChat, you know, a lot of systems that China developed uh, went very much faster than what the the U.S. have have done. In terms of the number of PhDs they're creating, in terms of AI technologies instead of the space technologies, nanotechnology, many areas they are going faster. The problem is that, you know, uh, Southeast Asia also does not want to be dependent on China. Um, so, for example, with uh, Malaysia, with the 5G contract, they gave the deal to Ericsson uh, instead, of, instead of China. So there is, a, uh, to what extent, Chinese technology is more advanced, uh, but to what extent will the geopolitical situation, in a way, um, resist the invasion of, of Chinese technologies? So we don't want, I mean, I don't want Southeast Asia to become a battleground between, say, China and the US. Um, so what can we do to in a way work with china on a friendly basis but not become dominant dominated by china i think it is a key question and i think that you know if we all you know if we if china feels they're being uh, encircled by pro western regimes it's not going to help they're going to get more and more uh, you know defensive uh, uh, combative right so so we need You know, there was a book written, right? Every time there is an ascendancy of a new power, uh, the descending power and the uh, ascending power goes to war, right? (laughs) And I don't, I don't think we want to see China and US go to war. So we need to create a situation where, you know, China ascendancy is in a way respected, without us become, you know, becoming colonized by Chinese technologies and uh, what 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 do you
0: think about Chinese? uh... Digital media. Do you think we could somehow use them or work with them to influence change, say in Myanmar, or you know other parts of this part of the world where 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 uh,
1: the the you know governments are a bit more authoritarian? I, yeah. I, yeah. I think there are so many different impulses in, in China, right? I mean, it's like U.S. and the West, and we can't. We it's not. It's not a monolithic. So we held the first uh, uh, Asian New Media Conference in, in Chinese a uh, long time back. I think it was about 2010, 2009, 2010, where we got the Chinese media from China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, and Malaysia. Uh, so the main Chinese uh, media in Asia got together. And it was a group of about 30 people where we talked about you know how, how the evolution of Chinese media, right? Uh, and then we're still so we work very closely with the Hong Kong University and the Taiwanese, et cetera. So we, we've, uh, we're we partnering with the, the initiative, which is the Hong Kong-based media. So we continue to try to invest in, um, in uh, Chinese-based media. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were looking at what would a dual-language English-Chinese regional media look like, uh, you know. Uh, so that the idea is that we need to build inroads with people in China who are more open-minded and progressive without being seen as, you know, Western-inclined or trying to be, you know, we're not an enemy of China, right? So how do you create that sort of engagement? Um, It's a bit tricky, but I think that we can find some uh, inroads and there are opportunities. Uh, uh, China is very interested in, in, in Malaysia. Um, so, so I think there are some opportunities that we can
0: create. Okay, thank you. Very interesting uh, discussion so far. Anyone else want to chime in this discussion?
1: Uh, Ramesh and
3: uh, KB or I want to say that I worked with Chinese environmental activists for many years. And it's one of the biggest questions on my mind is, um, you know, I feel like I see a lot of connections between um between social social movement people across the region but china is behind this you know there's like a kind of a china's a different world and it doesn't always seem clear uh, how to bridge those worlds and so that's one of the major things on my mind and i'm really glad that you brought that up pramesh um pramesh i have some other questions for you I'm going to ask two at once again and see if that that works or if it's too much for you, let me know. Uh, One is you talked about your daughter and how your daughter, um, you know, was, was pitching, you know, and it was really interesting. So I guess I think about as, as you think about your daughter and your daughter's generation and future generations and the increasingly digitized world that they are coming into what, um, what kind of skills and capacities do you hope that they have? Both hard skills and soft skills. So I ask you as a parent, and I also okay. ask you as somebody who is thinking about social movements and um, the present and future of social movements. Okay. So that's one question. Yeah. The other, the other question I have for you is, um, so, you know, we're a group of engaged Buddhists. And what is your spiritual or religious background? And what do you see as the role of spirituality and religion in the new digital age?
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is kind of like, like more personal my family. So just a bit of background. Um, uh, I, I, I married uh, someone who I knew from school. Her name is uh, Sham Sarah. She works with the UN. Um, she now works in Fiji <laughs> <laughs> where KB also spent a lot of time. Um and uh, she works with the UNFPA, the population program there. But she was also a bit of a, a social activist. We both, uh, you know, when we met, we were not activists, but we both happened to go on the same path. So, you know, it's been really good to have uh, a partner which you know shares those values. Uh, uh, that's really good. We have four kids. Um, my eldest is 25. I'm trying to remember, yeah, 25. And my youngest are a pair of twins uh, who are 17, uh, three of them are stuck in, in New Zealand. I have not seen them for eighteen months. Uh, my daughter, who's uh, in UK, uh, just came back, so it's good to have her. Yeah. Um, so that the so I think that, that that's my kind of family background. Um, and the question was, you know, seeing the you know what are the challenges that they will be facing the younger generation. I think the big thing, you know, the the the, the internet which they inherit will be the very different one than. The internet, which we grew up with, you know, it's a very different one. I think I think AI, machine learning, is going to play a, a big a big role, and nearly all of the of the interactions are going to be mediated uh, by some form of technology. So they already, you know, use their phones and computers for a lot of technology. Uh, you know, e- uh, intimation. You know, it's going to be a lot more voice. Uh, you see a lot, a lot more video. Uh, virtual reality is going to come in. You know, so. So really their, their lives are going to be uh, you know, mediated by by technologies. Of course, there'll be some people who will reject it and, you know, will want to stay away from technology. But, you know, I think they will really have a lot of technology in their lives. And I think the big, the key difference is the role of, of uh, emerging role of AI, um, which I think not only take over a lot of jobs, you know, it becomes so common to work with an AI, you know, whether it's a doctor AI or a lawyer ai or an accountant ai or a finance ai or an education ai that that you know the line of working with a human being who works with an ai uh will in a way get blurred so i think that's going to be the main challenge that they face and how the society adjusts to having you know very significant ais uh play very important roles in society um you know like this is a simple example of taking directions today. You know, we're on our Google Maps and we say we want to go A to B and we trust Google Maps to give us the, you know, the right route. But we've got no idea whether, it, you know, it's actually giving us the best route, but we just trust the AI. So it's not so much AI taking over, um, you know, humanity. It's just that humanity becoming reliant on AI for uh, many of the things that we do, uh, you know. Uh, uh, we do a lot on e-commerce and a lot of e-commerce is powered by AI. So you do a search, AI will tell you these are the five best products, uh, five best places to get in. We look at the five options, we choose one, uh, you know, and we, and we go ahead. Uh, we don't ask whether or not, you know, AI is actually giving us the best results. We rely on Google search. You know, we do a search on, you know, cures for COVID-19 and whatever Google tells us, we kind of either accept it or we reject it and then, you know, we, we talk to our friends we never know you know what is really the you know, source of information So I think for the younger generation I think that's the biggest challenge they face um, and I, I, I do not know how they will address it but I think they're gonna to have to figure it out uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's going to be a, you know a challenge for humanity per se um, your second question what my, my spiritual background um, I was born a, a Hindu. Uh, but my parents were not very religious. Um, I, I, on my Facebook page, uh, it says, uh, what, spiritual but not religious. So um, I, I, I believe in a sense of spirituality, but I don't believe in, uh, uh, you know, going to a temple or being, you know, the religious practice per se. And much like when you say you're engaged Buddhist, right, where you're using Buddhism as source of inspiration and philosophy and understanding the world, Rather than maybe going to the temple, literally, and you know, so so I'm I'm more on that. My degree is in physics, so I do a lot of work in science, and you know the 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 uh, I I have done work on you know quantum mechanics and things like that. And physics has also evolved a great deal in the last 20 years, and it's really interesting that the more you work in physics, the 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 link between spirituality and the physics of our world becoming in fact closer together. Uh, rather than actually different apart. So the more science uh, learns about the world of nature and the universe, um, the more role spirituality seems to have a role in it. Um, so that's very interesting. So, uh, so, so, yeah, I think that that's my kind of a, a spiritual background. Uh, part of
3: my question, Pramesh, was also, what do you see as the role of spiritual in the new digital age?
1: I think that, that, you know, if we, for me, if I interpret spirituality is a sense of, you know, combination of morality, of, of, um, you know, of ethics, of understanding the, the kind of the universe mm-hmm. and how the universe operates and sense of humanity. Um, and I think that, 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 uh, you know, we, that's a really good lens to, to see the, the evolution of society and see what we need to do about you know social justice and and the challenges that that humans face. So I think spirituality for me uh, is a sense of grounding that that this is the humanist of us that 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 you know you know it's like the other day I was asking myself a question uh, you know between being selfish and being selfless and uh, you know it's a kind of like who are we living for? Are we living for ourselves? Or are we living for others, right? And because my kids are all growing up, and I'm feeling that you know, all my kids don't need me now. <laughs> I'm suffering the emptiness syndrome, you know, like you know, like oh my kids don't need me. So like you know, and I'm you know thinking about leaving Malaysia, Kinney, and thinking about a second career and things. So the question of who needs me, uh, ring, you know, is a strong message. So I said that you know, you tie it back to spirituality. Is that you know. How do we then give back to larger society? I mean it's easy to give back to people who are immediately around you your children, your parents, you know um your employees, your staff. but you know as these things get delinked, then you have to give back you know to society in general and when you give back to society in general, society may not give back to you right so society is not saying thanks frame right so how do you? Reconstruct your social being in a society that you give to but doesn't give back to you, and I think that's kind of a, a major question that uh, occupies my mind. I don't know whether I'm making any sense, but <laughs> yeah.
3: You know, I, I I loved how you said. I loved how you boiled it down to that very core human question of um, who needs me and why do I exist if 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 i might not be needed um and 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 how that's connected to spirituality and our purpose in the world um if people have questions i really encourage you to use our final couple of minutes to talk with pramesh yes
0: dexter
2: um i just thought it was interesting how you know you said you've studied physics and uh i i haven't studied much physics myself i read a little bit of like uh Stephen Hawking but like (laughs) just the the bare bones and it is interesting how like the more that you study the physical world the more you might be studying the Tao or um like other different ways of viewing the universe um like more of a spiritual lens. that was just a side note though I was really curious to pick your brain about what you think the role AI can play in uh filtering um kind of fake news or providing a, you know, a selection of content that might actually be better curated for um, maybe diversity of opinions as opposed to siloed um, a siloed news feed where like you get all of your information is coming from, you know, center left or far right uh, news channels. Do you think there's a way that you could, that AI could be optimized by, a company or an app or Kini to help um, diversify people's um, awareness of news because I think that that's another threat when it comes to media in the digital world and how people consume it. It's, It's very easy to get stuck in echo chambers and siloed information. So I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, we've done some work in that area. We tried to look at the structure of news and disinformation and things. And we found two aspects that one is that, you know, how do people recognize disinformation when they receive it, right? It's through WhatsApp, you know, you could be coming through, from your grandmother, whatever it is, right? How do we, in a way, be, build media literacy and provide people with tools saying, hey, you know, maybe I shouldn't believe this. I should, you know, in a way, um, check whether this is true. That, that's one part of the thing. But if you look at things of vaccine and stuff like that, it's not just kind of a small disinformation. It's kind of like, there are like different schools of thoughts and people get caught in the echo chamber, right? Which reinforces a particular type of view, a lot of, you know, discussion and things like that. And they kind of get sucked into a view and they, they, um, they see the other side of the reporting, but they, you know, they, they, they don't value it. They, they say, oh, this is, this is rubbish. This is part of the, you know, the other side, it's all lies. So the, The challenge is two parts. One is how do we uh, use a little bit of AI to prevent the spread of disinformation? That's one part. The second part is to allow different points of views, but to expose the people to another point of view. And the other point of view needs to come from a source that is credible to that person. So it's no point, you know, someone from Fox News saying, go and watch CNN, right? Because they don't trust that source. So, for example, you know, if you are a Christian or a Buddhist, Can I, can the AI then surface, um, you know, alternative information, but from a source that you trust, right? So I need to understand, you know, the user behavior, what are the variety of sources that you would trust, Dexter, and then I need, and then I need to understand that if you're reading article A, can I offer you, uh, you know, an article B from a source that you trust, right? Not from a, you know, a source that you, you don't trust. So I think that's a challenge in AI. How do we develop an algorithm, one, to understand which is the Article B and which is the counter Article A and B, and two, for you, Dexter, what, what's the variety of sources that you trust, uh, and can I give you that thing? So it's not so much to say that, you know, that. it's just to try to influence you to try to give two points of view so that you can kind of understand it. So let's say what's, what's happening in, say, Afghanistan today, right? Uh, you know, you know how do we understand it from uh, say American point of view? How would you understand it from someone who's living from a, uh, in Afghanistan all these years? How would you understand it for someone who really believes that Taliban is you know, the right way to go? How would you understand it from say a Pakistani point of view looking into Afghanistan uh, uh, from a male point of view from a female point of view? So um, I, I, I think that AI can possibly, Figure that out and and bring these things to your attention. The question is that would you want to consume it? So we notice that a lot of people basically don't see it as a main issue. They don't want to invest the time to think about how they're being informed. Um, like I said, you know, if you want to buy, well, if I want to buy something online, I go to my favorite Amazon or whatever it is, and Amazon says, "Look, this is." Three uh, you know products available. I choose one and I'm done, right? So um, it is not so much whether AI can surface that information. Uh, what would it take for people to consume that information? I think is the bigger is the bigger challenge.
2: Yeah, that's a, a really good point. I, I hadn't thought about how you know we we automatically dismiss certain sources just because they're Fox News or something like that. It would take quite a you'd almost have to give up. Uh, a significant amount of your well, I don't really know when it comes to digital privacy, but you have to kind of let an AI observe the types of news that you consume frequently, and then kind of build off build a database or like a working um, like use yeah. the machine learning algorithm off of that. So it's you yeah. kind of give up quite a bit of um, maybe yeah.
1: anonymity. Yeah, and of course you know those 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 tools are so dangerous, right? Now we know a lot about brainwashing, right? So if I really understand, you know, a lot about your behavior, it's probably quite easy for me to actually, you know, lead you into a certain way of thinking. Um, so, you know, is it, you know, to what extent do we want to have such AIs? Is it's another type of question.
2: Definitely, it seems like we, we more need to encourage people to do that work themselves, <laughs> um, yeah, as opposed know.
1: to
2: give the give give it to them and make it kind of falsely easy, but then they give up all sorts of valuable data that they don't really understand the, the value of, not that I do either. <laughs>
0: okay. Thanks. Uh, we have a question from Rita. Um, I, I can't see her on the stage. And uh, Rita, are you on the stage? Okay.
4: I, oh yes, can you can hear, hear me? You.
1: Right. Yep, I can hear you.
4: Okay, hi. You know, I think, um... Mesh, you just you just touched on um, I think where this this whole um, conversation has been going anyway how do we sort of use our own common sense because when you started talking about algor- um about AI it it it's like we're abdicating the things that are inherent in us to um, to check ourselves to understand differently we're we're becoming so reliant so dependent on everything this this um, that's everything that's presented to us. So I was thinking one of the things that we, in our own training through INEB and in through the um, spirit and education movement, one of the focus is how we use our hands. And so sort of the balance, you use the word grounding already. And so, you know, I don't see the day I, that maybe we will only rely with our minds, but you know, our bodies need to be involved too. And this is where we bring the grounding back into our bodies. It's through our, our tactile senses, you know, and through touch. And I think that also gives us another other information about how we're processing these things we're being bombarded with all the time, right? So, I mean, it's a completely different take on what you've been talking about, but that's, that's sort of what I was, was thinking. Um, we get too easily carried away with all of the, um, the information. And uh so we have to figure our own ways of grounding ourselves. And I I so appreciate everything you've uh you've said. It's um, um about especially how your organization has grown and the and the way we can think about uh using digital uh di- digital media more in more diverse ways. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Rita. Thank
0: you. Yep. So with that question and comment Rita thank you and with that I think we have come to the end of our session. It's past nine o'clock which we probably end at nine so I'd like to take the opportunity to thank again thank you Pramesh for making the time to share um, your story of Malaysia Keeney your ideas and thoughts and also the, the last part to share about your own life we deeply appreciate that very very much and we will continue to keep in touch. Thank you very
1: much, Pramesh. Very much. Thank, thanks a lot for uh, spending, taking the time to uh, listen to me today. I, I really enjoyed Sometimes talking to people also helps me think, think through my own ideas, right? So we always learn also by sharing our experiences. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
3: Pramesh, I will just add that you are absolutely needed in this world. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I agree. I second that. Inspiring inspiring, and motivating, you know. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope I'm still needed. I'll probably put up the pasture. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I'll have to catch KB and, put out yeah. KB and have a few minutes. We'll I'll, I'll make sure
0: if you if 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 ever don't feel needed, you know, there's <laughs> Taiwan, you can go to Thailand. You know, Rita is in Thailand, you know. Yeah. yeah. You will be a welcome yeah. to count from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you, you luck. everyone, thank you and luck. good night.